Turn our Bibles now, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 20. And we're back to our study here in the last book of the Bible, really the last part of the last book of the Bible. And it's been several weeks since we've had the opportunity to discuss here some of these just amazing aspects of, of the future and what God has planned for the world. Now, Revelation is a Revelation is a magnificent book, and it's one that's really captivated people ever since the canon of Scripture was completed. A few weeks ago, we had the children up here on the platform, and um, they were reciting the books of the Bible. And I'm really thankful that we have that, uh, our Sunday school program, our pioneer program, where we teach children the importance of the Scriptures. So they were up here reciting the books of the Bible, and they, they did really, really well until they got down to the end, and they made one slight mistake. And I didn't say anything at the time. But all in unison, they said 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude, and Revelations. But it's not Revelations. It is Revelation, that's singular. And that's because John was given one revelation. And there are many aspects to that revelation, but he's only given one revelation. And that's how Christ is going to be revealed to the world at the second coming. Now, whether you're a scientist or you're a theologian or you're a philosopher or you're, you're just the average Joe, you know that this world came from somewhere and you know that someday it's going to end. Now, there are many people that are worried that uh, all of the world's resources are going to be used up and so eventually the earth is going to run out of those resources and not be able to sustain its population and then there are other people that believe in global warming, and they believe eventually there's going to be a climate change that's so great that the land is going to be inundated with water, the polar ice caps are going to melt, and then we're all going to live in water world. And even Kevin Costner is not going to be able to help us out of that one. And then there are others who think that the sun is going to burn out eventually, and then the planet will be so cold that it's not able to support life. And so everybody has a theory about what's going to happen to this world. But there's only one place we can go to get the facts, and that's to the Bible. And we can go to the revelation of Jesus Christ, and here is how we find out how the world will end. Now, some of it is tumultuous, and it's nearly unimaginable in the way the world ends. And then there are other parts of it that's tremendously and magnificently exciting, especially for the people of God. Now, in the 20th chapter of Revelation, the focus is the earthly kingdom of Christ. And this is the millennium that's characterized by a perfectly righteous government of Christ who is the king. And that kingdom is not going to come upon this earth gradually. It's not going to be because the world is all going to be converted to Christianity, that the world is going to embrace the doctrines of Christ but it comes about by a violent overthrow of all the world's systems. The king comes to crush the opposition, not to convert them. And when he comes back, he intends that all of his laws are going to be obeyed. He intends that righteousness is going to reign, and there will be enforcement of the king's law. Now, the Bible describes sin as the transgression of the law. And so if there is going to be righteousness, that means that sin must be quelled. And it means that lawbreakers have to be dealt with severely and that justice has to be swift. And in fact, that's the way it's going to be in God's kingdom. That's the way it will be ruled. In Isaiah chapter 11, 
Isaiah records, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. And of course that passage is talking about Jesus Christ. But there's also another strong determining factor that reduces sin in the millennial kingdom. And that's the subject of verses 1 through 3 in the 20th chapter. That's the removal of Satan from the world. Satan is not the cause of sin, but Satan is an instigator of it. He's a destroyer. He is a deceiver. And as long as Satan is loose, he will always stir up sin. And so in the opening verses of chapter 20, it tells us that Satan will be removed from the world. And I think that that necessarily infers that all of the demons will be removed as well, that all of them will be restrained in the abyss for a period of 1,000 years. And all of this time while Satan is gone, the world will, uh, all the nations of the earth will worship God. Even unregenerate people will be forced to worship God and there will be no rebellion against the king. And so for the first time since the fall of Adam, people will see what it's like when God rules and Satan is absent. Now, Satan is the cause of much of the world's misery, and without open overt sin, misery and pain and disease are eliminated. And at least to some degree, death is diminished. And so for this unprecedented time, there's peace and prosperity over all the world. There's perfect righteousness and the justice of God and the perfect equity that that happens on the earth for every person is attributable, attributable to these two important factors. One is the removal of Satan and all of his demons, and the other is the presence of the perfect king who rules in wisdom and power. But I need to remind you that during that time, the world's inhabitants will not be the children of God. I know that that is disputable, and we've covered that in in, in other lessons, and there are various opinions about it, but at least we can say this, that if they're not children of God or some of them are children of God, we can at least say this, that during the millennial period, the world is going to be populated with millions of people who are unregenerate. And these are the ones that we find here in verses 7 and 8 in chapter 20 that attempt a worldwide rebellion. So the millennium will come to a close, and the event that closes it is the release of Satan from the abyss. So we look in Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 7, and the scripture says, and when the thousand years are expired, that's the millennium that we're talking about, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison... And shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went upon the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here the scripture says that Satan will be loosed from the abyss when the millennium is over. 
Now, the length of the millennium has always been determined or marked by the amount of time that Satan is in prison. And again, that's where we get the term millennium. So we're here, we're getting close to the, to the end of time. And before we're through with this chapter, time is over. The millennium comes to the close and then it will be in eternity. Now, this particular part of Revelation does have a very interesting aspect to it. And it begins with the release of Satan. Verse number 7, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Now, perhaps you've known someone that's been in prison, or if you've watched a movie or a television show and you've seen prisoners released. And when a person finally gets out of prison, there's usually a sense of relief. Uh, There's some happiness about that because in most instances, uh, we would think that prison is not a pleasant place to be. And certainly prison should not be a fun place. We hear a lot today about prisoners' rights and how that inmates need their space and we don't have any right to crowd them. We need to provide for them certain amenities to make their stay in prison more bearable. I'm really not too sympathetic to that myself. Uh, I'm not really interested in softening a person's stay in prison. That's because prison's not supposed to be a place of vacation. And it's not an honorable thing for a person to be sent to prison. And so, if you've broken the law and you're a threat to society, then you ought to be miserable enough in prison that you'd think twice or three times or even four times before you'd ever think about doing something that would put you back into that place. And so, when a person gets out of prison, you would think, well, they're happy to be released and they're never going to think of committing that crime again. Unfortunately, we know that's not the case Because here in America, the recidivism rate is about 70% for violent crimes. And interestingly, that is a reflection of the activity of the character of the devil. And that's because when he's released from prison, his thoughts are not, well, I'm going to keep my nose clean. I don't don't ever want to go back there again. For 1,000 years that Satan is in prison, he spends his time there planning and scheming how he's going to go back to his old ways again. And since Satan was Lucifer and he rebelled against God, his attitude has not changed about this. The devil is not going to get better. He's not going to amend his ways. There is no redemption for the devil. And even if there was, the devil would never seek it because he's confirmed in that unholy character. And so there's not any amount of time spent in the abyss or even in the fires of hell that are going to cause Satan to change his ways. So his release from prison then is accompanied by his rage against God's justice. Satan is angry about this, what God has done. Now we saw back in the 12th chapter that Satan was filled with rage when he was cast out of heaven. When God threw him out of heaven and he took away his access to operate in places where he primarily works, then it brought out his unprecedented anger. And there we saw that all of his fury was unleashed against the nation of Israel and he attempts to destroy them from, and keep them from getting into the millennial kingdom. Now we would think that Satan has seen the handwriting on the wall, that that he knows that God can control him whenever God wants. And so at some point, we would think the devil is going to give up and the devil is going to cry, uncle. But that's not the way that he is. The devil is a master of deception, and perhaps his greatest deception is in the way that he's deceived himself because he still believes that the outcome is going to be different. He will, he believes, 
overthrow God's plans. So even when Satan is walking in the path of scriptural fulfillment, he still believes that the final outcome is going to be different. And so this time that's spent in the abyss, the time that he's known about for, a thousand, for thousands of years, that time that he spends there is spent figuring out not how to make amends, but seething in rage and waiting for the time that he's going to be released so that all of that pent-up rage translates into open defiance against God again. So immediately upon his release, we find here his rebellion against God's kingdom. This is what he, he does. He, and he shall go out to deceive the nations. And so there we're apprised of the purpose of that release. Um, he's realized for thousands of years where he would be, and then when he's there in that darkness and that torment of the abyss, it has no positive effect upon him. And I might add this as well, that those that are unsaved are the same in their character. They are of their father, the devil, and they're just like him. Now later on, in another message in a few weeks, we're going to talk about the torments of hell. And it's worth mentioning, I think, now that eternity in hell is not going to cause sinners to come to repentance. And we'll see in just a few minutes why it doesn't. But I want to remind you of that story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. And the Bible says there that the rich man lifted up his eyes when he was in hell, and he saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, and he cried out for water to relieve his suffering. And so in hell, he was still thinking about himself. He wasn't thinking about the sins that he committed. He didn't ask God for forgiveness of his sins, but he asked God for mercy because he's still thinking about himself. How can I be relieved of the suffering that I'm in? Just a little bit of water to cool my tongue. Now, he did ask for Lazarus to be sent to warn his brothers not to come to that place, but you do not find anything in the story about a plea of forgiveness. And so hell does not have a positive effect on people, and it does not turn them to Christ. And the abyss is not going to have an effect on changing Satan from his evil ways. And that's because hell is not a place of penance. Hell is a place of punishment. There's no restitution in hell. So the Scripture says that Satan goes out and deceives the nations. Now, we wonder about that. Satan goes out to deceive the nations. That's his plan, but does he have success? Well, next we would look at the reception of Satan. Verse 7 says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now, let's think back for just a moment about the character of this 1,000 years of God's kingdom. 1,000 years, for that period of time, there is peace upon the earth. For that 1,000 years, the world has yielded its harvest plentifully. There's no one that obeys the king that's suffering from starvation. For 1,000 years, there is no crime. People are safe at night. You don't have to lock a door because of fear of someone coming into your house and hurting you. you. You don't have to worry about walking on a dark street at night. For 1,000 years, there's been perfect justice. And if there is a problem, then that guilty person is dealt with speedily, very swiftly. And no innocent person has ever suffered or ever will suffer unjustly. And there's another part of the millennial kingdom that I think is really great. I love my grandchildren. I love having my grandchildren around. But I know if the actuarial tables are correct, in my case, that I have 
just maybe about 20 years or so left. And then I'm going to leave this world behind. I'll leave my family behind. I'll leave my wife, my children, and my grandchildren. And one of the reasons that we want to stay in this world is because of the people that we love. And we know it's going to be a wonderful thing to go home to be with Christ. But there's still that human side that, that as long as we continue here, we have the people that we love around us. And so we want to spend more years upon this earth. And that's the way it's going to be in the millennial kingdom because lifetimes are going to be longer. Lifespans are longer, and so there's more time for people to spend with the people that they love. Now, if we do want to check out of the world now, it's because of sickness or because of disease. It's because of disappointment. Sometimes people commit suicide because of their finances or such things as that. But all of those things are gone during the millennium. People feel good. The sickness is gone. There's no financial pressure. All is good. And that's because whenever righteousness reigns, it reverses the effects of sin. So you have all of that. And then the devil steps out of the darkness of his prison into this world of happiness, of sunshine, of perfect climate and perfect peace. And the devil comes with a proposal to overthrow all of that. And so what will the reception be? Well, there's no possibility that anybody would listen to him. Nobody's going to listen to such madness. Nobody wants to reverse the glorious kingdom of Christ and to go back living in the reign of sin again. Why would they want it back? And this is really mind-boggling because people that are born in the millennium have the Bible. I mean, the, the Bible tells us the Word of God endures forever. And I would certainly assume that they have history books. They're able to go back and look at the history. There's increasing knowledge in the world at that time. In the millennial kingdom, education will be outstanding. And all of that education is going to be from God's viewpoint. It's going to be just like a Christian school over the entire world. Every subject will be considered from God's viewpoint, from a biblical perspective. And so you also have people that can read the history of what happened under the Antichrist. They can read about the tribulation. They can read about all the trouble there. They can read about what the world was like before all of these great changes of the millennium take place. And they'll see that and they'll say, well, there's no way that we're ever going to go back to that. And that's what you would expect. But that's not what will happen. Now, the key word about the reception is the word deceive. Satan goes back to deceive. And so we see then the reaction of the deceived. Now this point is as far as I'm going to be able to go tonight, and we'll continue the outline next week. But we're going to spend some time here tonight trying to understand this, trying to understand the irrational decision of people that are so easily deceived by Satan. Now for sure, what this does show us is how cunning and how masterful that Satan is at what he does. There is no one that is better suited for this occupation than Satan. He is the very best at what he does. And there's nobody that's a match for him. We are incapable of resisting Satan's temptation without God's help. Now, in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 6, there's that familiar passage where Paul begins to explain about Christian armor. And the passage begins, or that part of it, begins in chapter 12, of, or verse 12 of Ephesians 6, where Paul says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. 
And there Paul is talking about a spiritual world that the natural man has no power to operate in. Now, if you go back and you look at the ministry of Christ, there you find Christ casting out demons. You find the apostles casting out demons, and there's no one that had the power to do that. No one had the power to keep a demon out that wanted to come in. The spiritual world that Paul writes about here in Ephesians chapter 6 is a world that's beyond our control. And so God says that, or Paul says, that God has provided a way of, of resisting demonic forces. And he says that God has given us spiritual warfare, or spiritual weapons, I should say, that allow us to fight against Satan. But the thing is, only Christians have those weapons. A lost person doesn't have any of the weapons. He doesn't have truth. He doesn't have the breastplate of righteousness. He doesn't have the gospel of peace. He doesn't have the shield of faith. He doesn't have the sword of the Spirit. And all of those things are necessary in order to keep Satan at bay, and the unbeliever has none of those things. And so when Satan comes to deceive, there is simply no defense. An unbeliever does not have the ability to resist the powers of hell. And so here comes Satan out of his prison with all of this rage, with another plan, with a thousand years of solitude to hone his technique. And so he comes and deceives the nations. And so people that have been blessed, people that have had it made in the shade under the reign of the king, receive the devil with open arms again. And so what is it that we conclude from this, from this insane reaction I mean, what is the Bible trying to tell us here about man? Well, it has to be the unmistakable teaching of the inability of man to refuse the advances of Satan and to receive the grace of God. Now, let's break that down for just a little bit and let's see what we have here. There's a perfect world with perfect conditions. Here, the Son of God is visible, and so we can say that faith is Now by sight, faith is no longer an unseen thing because the king is here. There's a physical kingdom. There's a magnificent temple that's built in Jerusalem. Uh, The glory of the Lord covers the entire earth. The glory of God emanates from that temple that's in Jerusalem. Conditions over the entire world are different from what they've ever been before, different from anything that we know. And yet with all of this... In just a very short time, Satan brainwashes and he turns the entire world against Christ. And their reaction against Christ, the reaction or or rejection of Christ, is worse, actually, than it was the first time that he was here. Now, the first time that Jesus was here, he performed miracles, he healed people of diseases, and he restored withered hands, he mended broken bones, he gave sight to blinded eyes, even raised people from the dead. The Bible says that there was no sin in him. There was no guile that was found in his mouth. And it says that he was full of mercy and of grace. And so Jesus was the most compassionate person, the most loving person that the world has ever seen. He loved the worst of sinners. And yet for all of that, they crucified him. And why did they do that? Because that's what's in the heart of man. Man doesn't want God. Man hates God. And so what Jesus did was to give them a glimpse of, of the kingdom, and they didn't want it. Now, that's what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings for so many months, how that Jesus did all of these different things that were a glimpse of the kingdom that's coming. So now, situation or the time that we're talking about here in the millennium, it's much different because things that were formerly in the shadows, things that we don't really understand fully, 
are now brought to light. Now, now that is the present way that the world is. Now the king is sitting on the throne. Now the manifold blessings of God are being showered out over the entire world. And yet people despise the rule of Christ and they crucify him again. Or would if they could, I should say. Now, do you see the fallacy of people that think this way, that, that think that if we could just get our hands on the government, if we could just get Christians into power, if we could just vote Christians into all of our public offices, if we just had greater freedom to preach the gospel, if we could just do this and just do that, then there would be millions of people that would be one to Christ. And yet all of that is there in the millennial kingdom. I mean, the conditions are perfectly conducive for millions of people to come to Christ. And yet what happens? Well, we see it here. You, you can work as hard as you can to clean up people's morality. You can put a thousand laws into effect that make it impossible for a person to tie their shoes without saying a prayer. You can do all of that, but it doesn't have an effect on a person's heart. You see, people who think this way, that think that, well, what we really need to do is just get Christians in control of everything, just take over the government, do whatever it is we do, people that think like that and think that that's going to change things really do not understand the problem. Their theology reflects that they don't understand the problem. And the problem is they don't understand the depravity and the inability of man. And so they think that if you can just make the carrot juicy enough, if you can just make the gospel attractive enough, then then people wouldn't be able to refuse it. And they don't understand that the human heart is never going to permit that. They don't understand the power that Satan has in the spiritual world to prevent them from coming to Christ. And so they think that their clever schemes will outwit the devil, that they're smarter than him, that, their di- that the devil's diabolical schemes can never stand against a person who's so adept at using the gospel of Christ. Now, the Bible teaches us that man cannot see the kingdom of God. It says that he cannot come. It says that he will not come unless God overpowers the human will and changes the human heart. But you have many people, that preachers, that have their techniques and they have their tricks for soul winning and for giving the gospel. And there was one preacher, a very prominent one in the Baptist ranks, in the independent Baptist, who said that you have to result to trickery. The thing you have to do is you have to trick people, catch them unaware when you give them the gospel. And so when he preached, his method was never to end his sermons with words like, finally... And never words like, in conclusion, because he said if you do that, then the sinner will set himself in. That the sinner will grip the pew and he'll not come. And so in effect, he said that he was teaching that his powers of persuasion were greater than the depravity of the human heart. And he was saying, in effect, that his preaching was more skillful than the wiles of the devil. Now, folks, that is utter foolishness. That is a failure in theology. It's a failure to understand what happened to man in the fall. Now, you just take the two greatest failures that will ever be experienced in the history of the world. One of those failures is at the end of the Bible, and the other failure is at the beginning of the Bible. Now, let's talk for just a moment about the end of the Bible, because that's where we are. The environment is totally perfect, Everything is totally conducive for following the Lord. All the proof that you ever need, all the information that you ever need is there. The Word of God is being taught from sea to shining sea. 
And then when Satan is loose, there's no resistance. People follow Satan like lemmings going off a cliff, and so they line up to reject Christ. Why do they do that? Well, because there's the age-old problem. They have sinful hearts. They have a sinful nature. And no matter how much you improve all the surrounding conditions of man, he still loves sin. And so the issue is that men love darkness rather than light. It's exactly what Jesus said. Men love darkness rather than light. And so you're not going to change people by feeding them more information. Do you know the Bible says that we already have enough information? We don't need any more information. The Bible says there's enough information that we're without excuse. That's what Romans chapter 1 says. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And so here in the millennial kingdom, the world is filled with even more information. And that's not enough to stave off the depravity of the human heart and the wiles of the devil. So that's what we see in the end. There's a world filled with information, a world that's filled with the righteousness of Christ. But the problem here is that all of it is exterior to the human heart. And so on this end of the Bible, on the back end of the Bible, we find right there the inability of man to come to Christ for salvation. Well, let's go to the other end of the Bible, to the beginning. And what was it like then? Well, Adam was created and put into the Garden of Eden. And again, there you have an environment that's overwhelming, conducive to belief in God, to perfect trust in God and perfect obedience to God. And then there's one greatly tremendous advantage that you have at the beginning of the Bible that you don't have at the end of the Bible. And that is there's no sin nature. There's never been a sin that's ever been committed in the world. Adam didn't have a sinful nature. He wasn't born in sin. He was created in innocence. And he was the same. She was taken out of Adam, so she was also sinless. So here you have these two people in a perfect environment. They have no sinful nature. And Adam and Eve chose to sin. Now, let me ask you something. Did something improve from then until now? I mean, has there come a new faculty in man that now he will choose God over sin? Well, we know better than that because you can't get better than perfect, can you? You, you can't find something perfect, more perfect than perfect, and that's the way that it was. And so what makes us think that now that we have the sinful nature and now that we've had all these years that have passed between us and Adam that now somehow we're going to choose God instead of sin when even Adam wouldn't do it. What's going to make man choose God instead of sin when he wouldn't do it before? So what's the point of all that? Well, the point is to show us, to the, in, show us the inability of man to respond to the gospel unless God has already changed his heart and made it pliable. And when you come to this realization, when you see the overwhelming weight of the evidence and, and the doctrine here has begun to be understood, folks, what you have here, you have just established the doctrines of grace. Everything has to fall in behind this. Once you understand this, the doctrines of God's grace are established. And so those who disbelieve the doctrines of grace find themselves on the horns of a dilemma. Because they know that this is true. You can't admit 
that, that man is totally unable to come to Christ when you believe like they do. And so what do you do? You refuse to believe in the total inability of man. And so they said, yes, man is able to come to Christ on his own. That, that's not a decision that God makes. That's a decision that you make. How can you make that decision? Adam couldn't do it. How can you do it? Not with the sinful nature. It doesn't happen in the beginning of the Bible. It doesn't happen in the end of the Bible. The total inability of man, and you can't prove it any better than what we read right here in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them together to battle the number which is as the sand of the sea. And so Satan is released from the abyss. He comes out with adeptness at deception. He comes out with even greater rage, greater rage against God and against humans than ever before, and he plies the human heart with success. And so these people that are living in the kingdom, they don't have changed hearts. They're still living in the depravity of the human nature. And when given only half a chance after a thousand years of perfect government, what do they do? They give in to man's always overwhelming desire. They give in to the possibility of going back into sin again. So they give in to that destructiveness, destructiveness of sin. Now, friends, I want to tell you that this is why that we teach that salvation from start to finish is in God's domain. Ephesians tells us that even our faith has to be given to us by God. And you know why God does that? Because the Word of God says He gives us no room to boast. He doesn't give us any room, even from the standpoint of a decision, to boast about coming to Christ. And so you don't come to Christ because you have good sense. You don't come to him because you're better educated. You don't come to him because you've made a better decision. The only reason that a person ever comes to Christ is because the Father drew that person with his irresistible, everlasting cords of love. Now, what God does with the sinner is that he pins your arms to your side so you can't resist. He changes your heart. And listen, he changes your heart for this purpose so that he can loose the bands then, and then you will infallibly come to him in repentance and faith. You will trust him as a voluntary decision when that heart has been changed by regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And so here are the facts of the gospel. Here are the facts of the way that God works, that unless God were to overcome all resistance, unless he overcomes Satan completely, then you are never going to believe. Now, without that, without God overcoming it all, you will not abhor your sins. You will not repent of sin. You will not trust Christ. And when you realize that, when you realize that God is the one who must do this, and that God has done it for you, that's when you say, glory to God in the highest. Salvation is of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we're able to spend in your word tonight. And what a truth that we see here. And Lord, unless you had come to us, unless you had overcome all of the opposition, unless you'd overcome Satan, unless you'd overcome the desire of our sinful hearts, then we would die and go to hell without any relief, no possibility that we can deliver ourselves from this. So we have to stand back and we have to 
awe at the mercy and the grace that you've shown and given Jesus to die for our sins and then taking the initiative to bring us out of those sins and to open our eyes to the gospel so that we can believe. Lord, that's a work, a sovereign work that you do. And we praise you, Lord, that you have all mercy and power. You have all the grace to do that for us. Lord, we thank you for that, and we pray that you'd help us to understand this and never to boast in anything that we've done, but to give all the praise to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to look into your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.